Joey is away on vacation and we'll be back this week and Brown and the teens are supposed to be gone but they got rained out Saturday in their trip so they're here with us this morning too. What would you think if you heard me make this statement? With God God as my witness, I am perfectly holy with no room for improvement. So what if I were to say to you in one sense, that is a true statement in Christ. There's there's words that have to be added to that to make it accurate. We're going to be looking at that this morning, that all Christians at the point of their salvation have been completely sanctified, completely holy. And it's because of our union with Jesus Christ. It's not something we can do on our own. It's not something we can even work towards. We we are already everything that we ought to be in Christ. Sometimes there's a confusing compliment to it. And that compliment is that we are also at the same time commanded to progress in holiness. And so sometimes that can be a little bit confusing. How is one who is completely whole in Christ also to continue to progress in a holiness that's already been completed in Christ? I think the Bible helps us sort that out. Hebrews 12, 14 And this is more the application. We're going to work a little bit backwards because this statement is that statement that kind of poses that tension we just talked about. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And it's a pretty bold statement. It goes on to give some other additional instructions. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So so how is it that if we're not striving for peace... And we're not striving, (coughs) excuse me, for holiness. That the author of Hebrews would make the statement, then you're not going to see the Lord. If indeed we are already, we know, justified, sins forgiven, slate wiped clean at salvation. And the Bible is also teaching that we are completely sanctified in Christ. Why the necessity of a progression during our earthly life? In other words, are we to depend on good works after salvation to build up our account of righteousness before God? We might have a tendency to feel that way. I mean, we we make statements sometimes like, well, I did this and this, and God's response should be this. I've been faithful at church, And I've been faithful with tithe, and I've been faithful with Bible reading, so I shouldn't have this set of problems in my life. And the reality is, God is not asking us to perform after salvation to get his blessing. But but we can feel that tension that we need to. 
Another way we could look at it too is that it's not telling us to reach peace or to complete peace or to complete holiness. It says to strive to do it. Especially peace, because if I'm going to strive for peace with somebody I'm at odds with, it's going to take them in order to have full peace restored. I, I may never see that in my lifetime, but I should be striving for it. I should be working at it. It should be a desire that's driving me. I know in my life on this earth, I will never reach the perfection that we have in Christ can't do it. But if I'm saved, I have a new desire in my heart, and I have the life of God in me, and I have the Holy Spirit in me, and I ought to have this desire to strive for holiness and to go after holiness. That should be something that is innate, if you would, in the new creature that we are in Christ. And if I'm not... At the very least, the statement we just read in Hebrews is just really, really serious. It's really serious because it gives a revelation where where I'm at in the race that Paul talks about in chapter 12. So I want to lay a foundation for what we just talked about and then go back to the application at the end. And I think it begins with understanding a view of God's holiness in just a small way. I mean, your view of God's holiness makes a huge difference how you respond to God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 says that the Lord our God is one God. That idea of one God is that he is complete and he's unique. He's one of a kind and he's beyond and above everything that he created. God is everything that his attributes are. When we work through the attributes of God being all-powerful and all-knowing, it's not that just he has knowledge. It's what he is. It's not just that he's loving. He is love. It's part of his nature. We also find in 1 John 1.5 that God is pure light, and in him is no darkness at all, or in him is no sin at all. Completely sinless. Completely perfect in that regard. Righteous in all of his acts. Righteous in all of his desires. Righteous in all of his thoughts. And Isaiah's response in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, as he's responding to the vision that he has, and he sees the Lord in that vision, high and lifted up on a throne. And it says his train of his robe covers the whole temple really probably given an understanding of his authority and his power. And the foundation of this temple is shaking as the seraphim angels are, are saying, holy, holy, holy. And God doesn't say a word at this point. But Isaiah is capturing all of this in his mind and his response is this in verse 5. And I said, woe is me, or doomed am I, I'm done. It's over. I'm in a whole lot of trouble. And there's no way out. For I am lost. I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm laid bare. And then he continues to say, For I'm a man of unclean lips. So in looking at the holiness of God, his response to himself is, 
This is what I am. Doomed, undone, and I recognize that I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he goes, and I also dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So our whole nation is in trouble right now. Why? Why does he come to this conclusion? For my eyes have seen the king. I've seen the Lord of hosts. And when you and I see ourselves in comparison to the holy God for what he really is, there's really only one response. That, that's submission, worship, give glory. There, there aren't any real other response. And I can't think of any other response of anybody in the Bible when they have been confronted with the majesty of God in some way, that that's not been their response. You might be able to argue that Satan, in the presence of God himself, rebelled, never came back to that point. But when you see anywhere in Scripture where man is confronted with God in his holiness, that's, that's the response. We know this is also going to be the response when Jesus Christ returns. In Philippians 2, 9, Paul writes this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, meaning Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, which, which is the name Yahweh. He, he is God, and he's going to be recognized fully as God. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And this is going to be unsaved and saved alike. Those who have rejected Christ, those just who were indifferent to Christ, those who just looked at him as just another way to God and chose another path. They're going to see him in all of his glory and they're going to bow and worship. And the Christian especially is going to bow and worship because he's our God and we've been looking forward to see him. So with all that being said, do you realize that God, when he saved you, saved you for a particular purpose and not, not just so that you were removed from the penalty of hell? Oh, that is a great gift and blessing that comes with that. That wasn't God's purpose. And it wasn't his purpose to save him from our sin or save us from our sin so that we could live a life according to our own satisfaction. With Jesus Christ being an addition to that life or somebody that we called into our heart to help us through this life, it's way, way more grand than that, way beyond that. I'm going to say that God saved us to be holy. For his purposes. We're going, to, we're going to look at God as the giver of holiness and the giving of righteousness he gives to us in Christ and the seriousness of the application of pursuing holiness and peace. So God is the giver of holiness. If you look at Ephesians 1.3, It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So when it says, Blessed be God, you, you and I don't bless God in the same way God blesses us. It's the idea of letting, as one person puts it, let the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be well spoken of, 
eulogized. In other words, when you and I bless God, we are praising God for the blessings he's given to us, and especially the blessings we have in Christ. So when we bless God, we praise. When God blesses us, he's giving something to us for our benefit and for his glory. It goes on to say in that verse that we are spiritually blessed in Christ in the heavenly places. And it's not merely that the blessings that which God is blessing us have their origin in heaven. That's where Christ is, that's where God is. But they are coming from the seat of God himself, where Christ is reigning. One man says it like this, it is that we saints, while still in this body on earth, are enjoying some of the blessings which we will enjoy when we get to heaven. And one of them is the pursuit of holiness, even though we've already been made holy in Christ. The blessings that we have, as it says, who has been blessed in, or who has blessed us in Christ. So in Christ does not mean that God sends his blessings to us through Christ and into us but that Christ is the basis or the source of the blessing. Since we're in him, and we have a union in him, and Romans 6 explains that union. Verses 1 through 6, he makes these statements in between that. We were crucified with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We were raised again to new life with Christ. As all those things were happening to Christ, in a spiritual sense, we were benefiting from them in the fact that we were in union with them. So the new life that Christ was raised to, we also were raised to new life. And we were with him in his death, and we were with him in his burial, and we were with him in his resurrection. We weren't there personally with him. But that's, that's part of the, the idea and understanding of our union that comes with Christ. So that in verse 4 it says this, Even as he chose us, talking about God, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And the wording of this verse becomes very, very important. And it helps us understand why we were saved. Because again, we, we usually work, look at salvation from the standpoint of a, of a man and a woman looking at what we did. And sometimes we don't always quite understand what God actually did. And God's sharing his view at this particular point. It says that even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, the word us is the object of the verb chose. So in a natural reading, we would say, God chose us. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's an individual person that God is cho choosing. And God is choosing him for his own possession. And he's choosing him for his own purpose. So the us that's here, that's being chosen, are those who God chose out of the mass of all humanity in this world. And it doesn't communicate that God disliked people or that God hated some other people or he rejected some other people. It only communicates the positive side that out of the mass of humanity, God chose 
us, people that were being saved. And we don't know why. It's a complete and utter mystery. Why God would choose some and why God may pass over others. We do have verses like this in Luke chapter 10 and verse 13. And Jesus is saying, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethesda! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So what is he saying to them, to, to Capernaum? Hey, if I had done the works that I've been doing with you that you've rejected, if I had taken those same miracles and done them with the people of Sire and Tidon, they would have repented, sackcloth and ashes. So why didn't Jesus do those miracles to that group of people? I can't answer it. I don't know. Nobody knows. It's the prerogative of God. But he wants us to understand that it was him that pursued us, not us that were pursuing him. But we're the benefit of that. So the question is, can anyone here today who knows Christ as their Savior muster up one good reason why God chose you? If you sit here today saved, and I can't think of one. So Christians ought to be what kind of people understanding what God has given to us in Christ? The most humble people in this world. Why? Because you got sought after by God when you were his enemy and alienated from him. And he in his mercy and his grace reached down and rescued you and saved you and you did nothing to deserve it. We ought to be a humble people. Truly, truly humble people in that regard. Some would look at this verse a little bit different in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, they would look at the object of choosing as holy. In other words, God didn't choose individuals. What God chose was that if anybody decided to come to him, he would make them holy, and that's what he chose to do, to make them holy. But the grammar doesn't allow us to do that. The, the grammar specifically connects the choosing to the us. So holiness becomes what? The purpose for what he chooses. The purpose for why he saves. The end outcome that he has for those that he is calling to himself. So that's the purpose of being chosen. And he chose this, we know from other verses from the foundation of the world. Romans probably communicates it best in verse 18 and 19 of Romans chapter 5. Verse 18 begins, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam's sin condemned all men. Doesn't sound very fair, does it? But that was God's plan. So by, because this isn't fair either, this is why we call God just and not God fair. So then one act of righteousness leads to justification. He's talking about the act of Christ, dying on the cross and living his holy life here on earth, leads to the justification or God being able to declare us righteous. 
Verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, first one talking about Adam, second one talking about Christ, many will be made what? Righteous. Holy. It's his purpose. His outcome. So Ephesians 4, excuse me, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, in Romans 5, 18, and 19. Paul's describing a theological position known as positional sanctification. What we are in Christ. A position that we hold in Christ. It's God's purpose not just to remove our guilt and to wipe away our sin. Because that, that would make us clean. That would leave our bank account, though, still what? Empty. God does more than just that. In the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, no more demerits, if you will. But in his life and in his obedience, both on the cross and, and as he lived here and as he carried out and fulfilled the law, because we are in Christ, God takes all the righteousness of Christ and he puts it in your account. And now it's chuck full, completely full. No more room to add any righteousness to it. So when God looks down at you and I from heaven, he sees the righteousness of Christ and he is completely satisfied with us. Completely satisfied. So can you and I do anything to earn any more merit to fill that up anymore? I, wa I want to do that. I mean, I believe I can do that. Sure, surely I can make myself more pleasing to God if I can somehow muster up some real good works. Jenny's telling us, no, you're full. You're completely full in Christ. It doesn't mean we don't work. That's going to be the outcome of this. So don't, don't think I'm saying, oh, good, I can just go do what I want now. It's completely the opposite that happens because of that. So our account that was heavy in sin and debt, not just wiped clean, but filled to the max. With the righteousness of Christ, standing complete before God, totally undeserved, but this righteousness has to have a basis. God, God just doesn't do that without any particular cause or reason. There's a basis for it. And that basis is in the obedience of Christ. And it's described in two different terms. One is Christ's act of obedience. This would be his act of obedience to the law of Moses. To live it out both in heart and in deed. In fact, we find out in John 4.34 that he was the ultimate servant of God. He said to them, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. That's why I'm here. And that's what I'm living for. And Christ is our example of what submission and obedience to the will of God looks like. Full surrender. Submission sometimes to the will of God is even at the cost of life, cost of loss. We, we would say that that is more passive in, in nature, while 
obedience is more active in nature when we're actually doing something that God has asked us to do. As opposed to submitting to what God is imposing upon our life at that particular moment. We learn from Galatians 4.4 that Christ was born under the law to redeem those that were under the law. He lived under the law. He fulfilled the law of Moses. So that we know from Matthew 5.17 now that the law has been fulfilled in him. And I believe his obedience to God and his obedience to the law is part of the understanding of the righteousness that Christ merited or God merited to our account. Because there's no man that can live up to the law. And no man can please God simply on their own. There's also a passiveness to Christ's obedience I just mentioned. And again, this is him allowing himself to be nailed to a cross, be nailed to a tree when he had absolutely no sin against him. Could Christ have called 10,000 angels? If you, if you were in that situation, dying unrighteously, and you had power to do something about it, I, I would have just destroyed them all. <laughs> no questions asked. That's why God doesn't give us that power. It's why only God can control and use that power in a righteous way. There was something far greater that God was doing in Christ. And he is allowing. We, we know in other verses that Christ laid his life down for the sheep. No, no man took it. He also makes this statement Christ does in Hebrew 10 in verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, meaning God. This is Christ speaking to God. You have neither desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices or offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. And then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first order, the Old Testament, and he establishes a second and a new living way in Christ. And by that will we have been sanctified or made complete, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Never have to be done again. That, that would be our position in God. Completely sanctified in Christ. Completely holy. So his passive obedience in allowing the crucifixion is seen in his submission to accept God's will. And suffering, abuse. I mean, you, look, you look at his whole life. He was dogged by the, by the authorities. He was rejected, scoffed at. His own people turned him away. So no one takes Jesus' life. He lays it down according to God's will. It's the ultimate act of submission. And so we make this statement that God's act of obedience in keeping the law of Moses and living a righteous life and his passive obedience and his sacrifice on the cross is the merit or is the basis in which God takes his righteousness and places it on our account. There's no other reason for it. There's nothing that we've done to deserve that. And here's some of the application that is just really helpful in it. 
there's arguments out there about whether somebody can lose their salvation or not. If they fall into sin, does a man or woman lose their sanctification? Do they, excuse me, do they lose their salvation? If this is correct, and this is permanent, in other words, Christ's righteousness on our account, permanent, then there is no such thing as losing your salvation. Because your standing before God never changes. But I fall into sin. I fall into grievous sin. Surely my standing with God has changed. And the Bible says, no, it hasn't. He still, still sees the righteousness of Christ in your account. You're still his child. But you are out of order. Way out of order. And if we were to go back into Hebrews a little more, we'd find out he chastened us, us at that point. In fact, it's a matter of fellowship now, not a matter of loss of standing. 1 John 1.9 says what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful. And that means looking at our sin like God looks at our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is not a verse on salvation. It's on restoring fellowship. So Christian never loses his standing because we're in Christ. It's secure. But he can break the fellowship. And it needs to be restored in confession and repentance. That's one benefit to that truth. Another thing we understand is the holiness that we're to pursue is in increments. It's a little bit at a time. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. That was, that was God, right, in Romans 8. We're saved to be conformed to the image of Christ, and everything happening in life is towards that goal. We're beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, one degree of a glory to another. Not in leaps and bounds. Not in one major decision to dedicate your life to God. Not, not in those types of things, but in increments. One decision at a time. One obedience at a time. Continual submission to Jesus Christ. In increments we are becoming Christ-like. On the foundation of the righteousness of Christ that never changes. But the life that we live right now is not totally Christ-like. And I think we can look at any one of us in the room and go, agreed. That's a progress. That's what's happening, but it's on this basis. So progressive sanctification, the living out the life of obedience to Christ right now is really, really serious because it's a revelation of the fact that we have been completely made righteous in Christ. It's a revelation. It's, it's a, can work in a couple different ways. You're not earning anything. But if it's not happening, there's warning. If it's not happening, there should be serious concern. There ought to be desire to progress. That's why he says in verse 14, to actively strive for peace and holiness. Strive for the peace with everyone 
not, not just Christians, not just in the church, totally within your family, that's probably the hardest place to strive for peace because you are striving all the time because you're living in the same place and tempers can rise and guards are let down. And if we could see what we are of each other inside our own homes as we peered through a window and saw what other people might see, we might be horrified at ourselves at times. That's the nature of it. But he's making this statement. If we're not striving, we're not going after this. For peace and for holiness. Obedience to the word of God. Then there's reason for concern. I'm not so sure that Paul would agree with us today as we have discussions about personal preference in areas that we we don't agree on. In fact, I know he doesn't totally agree with us because in Romans chapter 14, they have differences of opinion. The, The one is still holding some of the ceremonial laws and the other is saying, we can eat and drink what we want. And what does Paul admonish them to do? Because he says both of them will stand before Christ. Both of them will be judged by him. So you need to accept each other in your differences because that, that, there are some that we, we just don't know for sure. So we would be all over the map in here on some of those areas. But Paul does say one thing. It can't just be your opinion. It can't just be what you think is best or works best in your Christian life. He says in verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should what? They should be fully convinced. They should be fully, fully persuaded right down to the bottom of their toes that they are in line with Scripture the best that they can tell and they are serving God with a pure heart, no selfish motives. If any of those things exist in your preference... It's out of order because you are to be fully convinced, fully persuaded, completely engulfed with the word so that you have a basis for why you're doing that. And he goes on to say this, don't, don't fail to obtain the grace to progress in holiness. Verse 15 says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And I I think the best I can understand, it's the grace that enables, the grace that enables to obey. Don't, don't fail to, re, to have that, to progress. And I think it helps with these other verses because it says, here, here's why you need all that. Guard against letting bitterness take over your heart. So the other half of that verse that I just read. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. But bitterness causes all sorts of trouble inside the individual, affects everybody that is around them. It's a sign of a serious spiritual condition. And he's saying, don't, don't fail to obtain the grace that would prevent you from a root of bitterness coming up into your heart so it just corrupts you and defiles you and hinders your progress in sanctification and becoming holy. 
He goes on to say, don't embrace sexual immorality in all the forms you might find it in. Whether it's real life with people or if it's pornography or other ways. Don't, don't embrace it at all. He says in verse 16 that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. And we, we can understand the sexual immorality being completely outside of God's bounds. But may have a little hard time struggling with why is he connecting it to the unholiness of Esau? Has it caused me to struggle? And I don't know that I got the final end of this, but, but in general, it, it looks like it's something like this. Now finish reading the verse. Unlike un, <clears throat> or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with his, with his heart. We, we don't know of any passage that tells us that Esau committed sexual immorality. You, you may be able to refer it to the fact that he had gone outside of God's plan and he married two wives outside of the Israelite um, nationality and that was against God's plan. Po- possibly the two wives could be that. But, but I think it's probably more the fact that Esau just disrespected and completely was irreverent, profane, if you would, with what he knew to clearly be the plan of God. Esau knew very clear and well that as the oldest son, that God intended that he be what? That he would inherit the blessing from his father and he would become the patriarch of the family. That's God's plan. And he goes out hunting and he's famished. And because of a biological urge to eat and hunger, he takes what is, what is priceless. He takes what is incredibly sacred because God asked him to uphold this and to take the birthright. And he discarded it for a pottage of porridge of some sort. Lentil beans, I don't remember what it was for sure, but something like that. Poor, poor choice anyways. Um, hate that stuff. Um, I can't say that because I haven't tasted it all. And then somebody's going to make me taste it. But that's Esau's sin. Could, could you and I fall into Esau's sin? Clearly knowing and understanding what the Word of God is instructing us to do in a situation. But because it's messing us up so much inside or because it's so contrary to what a personal desire is, we, we just set it off to the side and purposely discard it for something as frivolous as natural human impulses. Yeah, we can. I think lastly for Esau, he settled for regret and bypassed repentance. Gives the idea that he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I think it gives the idea that Esau came to a point when it was all said and done, he legitimately regretted that he had given up the birthright and was legitimately sorrowful for the birthright. And would very much like to have had it back and sought to get it back, but it wasn't possible because it was already given to Jacob. But I don't think we find repentance 
in Esau. We just find regret. And that's a whole different ball game when we look back in our Christian life and go, I regret doing this, and I regret doing that, and I regret that I said that to this person or that person. The real question is, what did you do about it? Was there a necessity for repentance? In other words, is it still not right? Well, we ought to pursue it. We ought to pursue it to make it right. Because we're to strive for holiness. And again, if that's not our goal in life, if that's not the driving desire in life that supersedes all other desire, and we struggle with it at different levels and different times, it's not perfect. At the very least, it's a warning signal, a revelation of where we may be at in our walk with God, or our lack of a walk altogether. It's one of those two options. I am so thankful that I can't answer that question for anybody because we would so misjudge each other all the time if we did and it would be horrible. You have to wrestle through that between yourself and God and your own heart. And in the meantime, we may see somebody that's out of bounds. And instead of judging, we have a responsibility to do what? Go after them. Go after them. Make peace if we're at, not at peace with them. Pursue holiness with them. Encourage them. Whatever, but we need to get involved. We need to get involved as a whole group with each other because that's how we help each other in this Christian walk. And that's how we get each other across the finish line. Lord God, you are a very gracious God because you have given us so much in Christ, all that we don't deserve. You are an incredible patience. Because I'm quite sure that if we saw ourselves totally in your light, we would be fearful all the time of your judgment. And yet at the same time, you give us the confidence that we remain completely secure in the righteousness of Christ. And at the same time, you give us all that is necessary in this life in Christ to pursue your holiness. So we pray, dear God, that you might help us to do so with our whole hearts and our whole mind, that we might do so as we help each other, so that as one body, dear God, we might become a body that fits your head. Help us, Lord, to help each other cross that line. And may we always continually depend on you. And we will give you all praise and all glory in your name.